When you want a mayor or a governor, you want someone that leads, takes charge, get things done. And so, you know, those words are gendered in our in our society. And so trying to, you know, push up to show that, yeah, women can lead, take charge and get things done and be a woman is something that, you know, you're always pushing up against in executive leadership. From Politico, this is Women Rule where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and author of the Politico Playbook. That's Nan Whaley. She's the mayor of Dayton, a Democrat who says her party can win in places like Ohio, even as those places grow more conservative. Her political education started young. Sure, plenty of families talk politics at the dinner table, but her family discussions were on another level. Ronald Reagan was president, and you know, I'm like I'm like six or seven. My brother is four or five, and my mother's getting dinner on the table, and um, she's putting dinner down, and she looks at both of us, and she says, "Do you know why there's no meat on this table?" Now I have to be honest. I had I'm like seven. I had no idea. Like we're just eating dinner, and uh, we just look at her, and she's like, "Oh yeah, Ronald Reagan took the meat off this table." The mayor and I spoke last week about how she ended up in politics at such a young age and the challenges that come with raising campaign money. But we started with her work as one of the leading voices trying to convince Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown to run for president. She's the co-chair of the draft Sherrod Brown committee. Here's our conversation. Well, Mayor, thank you so much for joining us on Women Rule. Let's jump right in. We often hear how the Democratic Party needs to reconnect with heartland voters. It's something that senators and members have been talking about since uh, this last election. As the mayor of Dayton, where do you f- see the Democratic Party fitting in into the Midwest? Uh, it's great to be on. Thank you so much. And you guys aren't messing around to get to the heart of the matter here. Uh, yeah, I think this is a very core issue. I think um, I'm hoping that um, as we look at the presidential election for 2020 and the enormous number of um, candidates, uh, that they really start focusing in on this this issue of um, heartland voters. Uh, I think, frankly, you know, it's not surprising Senator Brown, who's thinking about running, I think has nailed this this message the best. Um, his dignity of work campaign that's coming next week, I think, will be. Uh, interesting to see. I mean, I think it will probably resonate very well in Iowa, uh, but I think it'll be interesting to see how it does in New Hampshire, South Carolina, and and Nevada as well. Uh, This whole idea that um, I think, you know, I said this earlier this week, you know, I think that um, the media hasn't really covered it really well or right. It, you know, it has the, 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 the sense of like coastal media coming in and like looking at us as a a specimen or Mm -hmm. um, foreign country yes kind of and or or like just like um oh well this is like a white working class issue and so this is what it is and i think it's way deeper than that um because we do see like also you know um uh even in our communities people not voting at the levels in our cities voting at the levels we'd like them to so it's deeper than just like a race issue it's deeper than um, a small town issue. I think it's it's a real issue of there's just not been you know there's been winners and losers not just in your inside a city but cities now that win extremely and then other communities that are losing you know based on automation uh, and trade deals and so I think that's really what's going on here. Well, you brought up Senator Brown, so yes. uh, that's the elephant in the room. Uh, let's talk about this presidential 2020 race. You co-chair the committee to draft Sherrod Brown mm-hmm. for president 2020. From your vantage point, what's Brown's path? Well, I think, you know, if you 
if you read the message of the dignity of work and he's getting ready to do this um, this uh, um, listening tour across the four states, uh, I think it's the message that should be central to the Democratic Party for 2020. Uh, you have got to figure out a way, uh, as a party, we have got to figure out a way to win the industrial Midwest. And you know, there's a lot of discussion about Ohio, whether or not it's a red state or not. Um, I don't think it is. Um, but I think... Um, uh, we have to have a candidate that will be able to talk to Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, those communities and those those states, and they're very similar to Ohio. Mm-hmm. And so, his message, uh, uh, what he's talking about, also isn't something that has um, hasn't been something that he just woke up this week and said. <laughs> right. It's something he's been talking about for decades, and that he's really walked the talk on on these values for the past few decades. The other thing I'd say about it is, you know, again, it's not like I think the media will have a tendency to say, oh, well, this is again about white working class voters. He's been very cognizant about it being about all workers. And if you think about it today, you know, women are a big part of the workforce, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like half. And then also um, people of color. And those are the folks that are really being marginalized as we think about automation and other points. And so I think that's a big part of this message on dignity of work. What do you think needs to happen to get him to the nomination? Yeah, so I think, uh, well, number one, he needs to decide that he's running. So that would be good. Do you have a sense? I mean, it seems like he's putting all the puzzle pieces in place. Yeah, but look, I mean, he, you know, he ran in Ohio last November for Senate. And I know that there was no discussion about this presidency until after the November Senate race. So he's, uh, you know, and uh, other candidates that were even on the ballot in 18 were coming from different states that are a little easier for a Democrat to win. We Mm -hmm. can't take anything for granted in Ohio. And I'm grateful for him for doing that. So he's a little you know, he's just behind in the thought process for him, um, him and Connie mentally. And I think that's what's going on right now. Uh, and then I think his path is uh, one that could be pretty, I, I can see his path, path pretty easily. He'll do well in Iowa. I think, I think he's a retail politician. That's why he does so great in Ohio. It's a, his message is one that re- res- resonate, will resonate to Heartland voters. I think he'll do well in the other states as well. I mean, I've had mayors um, from across the country in New Hampshire yesterday. One of the mayors <laughs> said, oh, can you have Sherrod call me? I mean, they're very excited about him. So I think that's a good sign. Uh, and then he'll do well in Nevada as well, because I think he'll have a lot of labor support. And then, you know, we pivot to the big states of California and Ohio on Super Tuesday. And I think he'll do it. Like, I think Iowa's really key for him. In terms of just momentum? Yes. I mean, it's a year away. But I think, you know, uh, the way the map works for the Democratic process, uh, Iowa is February 3rd. And then early vote starts like two days later for California and Ohio and other Super Tuesday states. And so that is going to be, I think, a real pressure on 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 the calendar next year. What do you think are his biggest vulnerabilities? Well, he is not a a woman, right? We Uh, have more women running than ever before. Which is great, which is great. Um, And I think like, you know, I think actually it's it's an advantage. He's not a household name right now. Uh, And what's been amazing to me, you know, you see these straw polls. Here's a guy who hasn't decided if he's going to run. And I mean, he is truly, you know, I think doing this process very publicly in his decision making. Um, But he's like coming in like fifth and sixth on straw polls. And um, I think that says that people are really curious about him. They really are resonated to his message, but he's going to have to get known more. Um, all right. I don't want to focus too much on him, but I have one more question on this, which is you, your kind of group has suggested that he needs to move faster in making a decision. Can you elaborate on that and like what kind of a time frame for you that you think would be best? Right. So I, I think we want him to make a decision soon. We recognize that um, 
he needs to take this time. And so we're trying to, you know, get the message out while he's doing his process personally and and publicly. Uh, but, you know, I think he's they've agreed like I've seen I've you know, I can't communicate with him, but I've seen on the <laughs> news that, you know, Connie has said that they'll decide in March. And I think that's about right. I mean, I think that's about as late as they can get in. All right. Well, let's shift to you and your background. Um, I was reading this morning. You got involved in politics pretty early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. t- talk about that. What what fueled your interest? Yes. Yeah, so I was um, um, actually a chemistry major at the University of Dayton. Uh, go Flyers. And, uh, you know, a first generation college grad. Uh and, uh, you know, I think typically my brother went to Dayton with me and we're from Indiana and he was a finance major. He was two years younger than me and I was a chemistry major. And that's pretty typical of first generation college. You know, you know, your parents say like, no, you know, no liberal arts. Like right, we need professional. Something, <laughs> you need something that, you know, can pay the bills. So um, I did that. And then um, while I was there, my, my parents really encouraged me since I was in Ohio, the decider of presidents. Uh, Bill Clinton was in his first term and they said, well, you know, you should really get involved. Um, you know, because Ohio decides who the president is, Indiana doesn't, right? And uh, I got, I you know, took a bus to Democratic headquarters and started volunteering. Volunteering, people were like really, really um, terrific. You know, these uh, older women. I think, I guess that wasn't normal, and uh, they were super supportive of me. And then started the College Democrats at the University of Dayton. Did you always know you were a Democrat, or did you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, my my dad. Um, uh, is um, was a member of the Iron Workers and, and uh, the Uni- Uni- uh, United Auto Workers mm-hmm. as a GM truck and bus. My mom was actually like a local official for our small town of 5,000 people. I think she was like the only Democrat elected in like 50 years. And, you know, it was a very Republican county and area, uh, still is. And uh, so, you know, we always, I just always knew that, uh, you know, and it was, it's more about like um, uh, the Democratic Party is the place that wor- takes care of workers mm-hmm. and people like my family. Uh, and uh, I'll tell a funny story. I tell people a lot. Uh, I was like six years old. My dad was um, laid off from General Motors. It was during the uh, recession of the '80s, and uh, um, I, and um, Ronald Reagan was president. And you know, I'm like I'm like six or seven. My brother is four or five, and my mother's getting dinner on the table, and um, she's putting dinner down, and she looks at both of us, and she says, do you know why there's no meat on this table? Now, I have to be honest, I had, I'm like seven, I had no idea, like, we're just eating dinner, and uh, we just look at her, and she's like, oh yeah, Ronald Reagan took the meat off this table. So, you know, I mean, it was like, in my family, (laughs) like, I mean, I like was terrified of Ronald Reagan, like, if anything went wrong in our family, my mother would say, Ronald Reagan did that. I thought like when it was raining outside, he obviously didn't want me to play. So um, you <laughs> a lot know, of power, had, a lot of power. a lot of power in my house. And, you know, and so I think that taught me really early on that elections have consequences and that these things, you know, that don't, you know, you don't really have a lot of control of even as a voter or as a child, certainly not as a child, but they can affect your family. And so that's always been part of, you know, who I am. And, you know, I uh, have great respect for democracy and the power of the vote because, um, I can see even today, you know, these things happening far away affect our communities locally. So you're a chemistry major, you're kind of starting college Democrats there. Mm-hmm. But how did you get that courage to kind of shift? Because, I mean, yeah. you're looking for like the professional paycheck right. to go into politics. 
Right. So I, you know, really just fell into like loving volunteering, just started volunteering for campaigns, um, worked for local candidates after I got out of uh, college, wanted to stay, really fell in love with the city of Dayton. Uh, you know, it was a, the size of the town is one that's easy entry, but big enough where you could make a difference. And it's got like this gritty determination, very blue collar, um, pretty working class. So it fit, you know, who I was. And I just really loved it. Uh, and then and then I didn't even think about running for office. This is such a uh, typical uh, female thing that, you know, I'm working all around candidates and never even considered like, oh, I should run. Um, and Emily's List came to see me in like 2003. So I was 26, 27. And they were like, and I was working on a Senate race and they had a male vendor that was um, also working on the Senate race. And so I got to know them. They were out of Chicago and they, they had said my name because they were looking for a candidate for Congress. And I, I mean, seriously, I was 26 and uh, 27. And they like sent their folks in and said, we want you to consider running for Congress. And they flew them in from to Dayton. And I was like, Congress, crazy. <laughs> so I, I but I went through the process and listen, they were like, you'll just need to raise like a million dollars. Just you a know, million. <laughs> that was like, um, you might have as well told me like, you need to go to the moon and back. You know, again, like as we mentioned where I come from, like I don't know a lot of people with money. <clears throat> but... Um, and, you know, decided that I didn't really want to go to Congress. I've never been really uh, attracted to D.C. much. Uh, and um, and but I did I did email them and was like, I really appreciate you coming in. I've decided that I don't want to run for Congress, but I do want to run for like city commission. And they were like, well, we don't care. about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really give Emily's list a lot of credit because that that conversation sparked my interest in you know, wanting to run for office. And then what was cool when I ran for mayor, Emily's List did endorse me. And so I thought that was great because it was like, you know, they actually started this for me by just even opening the conversation. Well, so talk about that. You become, you became the youngest woman ever Mm -hmm. elected to the Dayton City Commission at the age of 29. Right. Um, You are a relatively young woman running for governor in Ohio. You said you faced a lot of obstacles. Tell me a little bit about that because I assume a lot of these other officials at that level are, are men and sure, probably older yeah. yeah older and men um yeah i think i'm still the youngest person on my city yeah city hall yeah they're all yeah they're all older than me still <laughs> um yeah so i'm only the sixth woman ever to serve on the dane city commission today and i love my council i i, t- I tell them that they're practically perfect except they're all dudes um <laughs> But, I mean, they're, they're very supportive of me. And they all endorsed me and wanted me to run for mayor, which I think, you know, is awesome. You know, you need to have men that support women, too. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I think when, especially when you're in executive leadership, like running for mayor, running for governor, uh, it's very different than running legislatively. And it's, you know, I think Barbara Lee Foundation has done really good work on this. Mm-hmm. And I, like, listen to their webinars and they've been really helpful and listening to their work. But it is true. When you talk about legislators, you want people that build consensus and bring people together and work well with others. And when you want a mayor or a governor, you want someone that leads, takes charge, get things done. And so how you can, you know, those words are gendered in our, in our society. And so trying to, you know, um, really push up to show that, yeah, women can lead, take charge and get things done. And be a woman is something that, you know, you're always pushing up against in executive leadership. Did you have any kind of specific examples where it was really hard or that you kind of had to change maybe your approach? 
I don't think I've ever changed my approach. Mm-hmm. I've been really lucky to be a second generation elected official, right? So the people before me, I couldn't even imagine the women <laughs> that had to do that. So um, I like, you know, second being a second generation, you appreciate that, but then you, you're allowed to be more like yourself and not mm-hmm. have to change tactics as much. And so I'm grateful for that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I had an issue and I, I, again, used the Lee Foundation for this when I was first elected mayor. Um, you know, I hate shopping. I hate clothing. Um, I like love Stitch Fix because it just comes in the mail to me. I'm like really <laughs> not into clothing. And, uh, it's amazing. Um, and uh, this uh, reporter like, you know, wanted to have it both ways in the local paper, like wanted to say like, why is everybody talking about Mayor Whaley's clothes? And then like, quoted all the trolls <laughs> and um that's like the nothing i'd ever brought up and i like remember like the lee foundation like doing a lot of work on this and saying mm-hmm. like you know if you're a woman you real and you're a leader you can't really talk about your clothing and so i went after the reporter who was actually is is, is a friend of mine and was like oh no we're not we're not doing this and it, because it does it takes away your ability ability to lead when women start talking about other things besides leadership besides what they're going to do mm-hmm. um it does to this day i think affect their ability to lead and so i remember i did it um it was painful to go through people didn't understand like why i made such a big deal about it but i'll tell you what nobody has ever talked publicly about (laughs) any discussion about what i'm wearing and i'm really grateful for that so that's like a lesson yeah no absolutely one of the other challenges that we talk a lot about on this show for women and women not only just in politics, but you know, entrepreneurs or in all kind of facets of their lights, their life is fundraising and how difficult it is to ask for money. Mm-hmm. And you kind of t- talked about that, right? You, the million dollars seemed like, I mean, ridiculous. Just, uh, how could you even yeah. think about it, right? What's your approach? Do you have any advice for women who are having to make that ask? Like, look, I think, you know, part of all of um, campaigns, you know, I think if you asked elected officials, both men and women, they would be like, fundraising is the worst, right? I, I like to look at it a little differently. Um, I don't mind it anymore. I mean, I think it's something you just continue to learn. And I think, too, that you're, um, you're, when you're fundraising, for me, it's, it's two things. Number one, you're asking people to invest in you and invest in the vision that you're trying to move forward. And so I think that's really important if you think about it, that, you know, that way. And then secondly, you... Um, uh, it, you need to stay in touch with your supporters. And so by fundraising and not just doing it and being more regular about it rather than just doing it at the end, mm-hmm. you know, it makes you stay in touch with people. And I really like that, right? So, you know, people that have invested in you, then you have a reason to talk to them. And if you think of it that way, uh, rather than I need to just raise this money, I think that that's worked better for me. It's kind uh, of building that relationship. Yeah, it's a, it's a relation. And I've, I've told other candidates this, you know, you know, Politics is mostly about relationships, whether it's with um, your colleagues to get something passed or get something moved or the people that work for you to like instill leadership about what the vision is. It's about the relationship that they believe in you for that or the people that support you, you know, whether that's a neighborhood leader or someone that's a donor. And so you want to make sure that you're always communicating with them. And, you know, by having fundraisers, by doing call time, you're doing that. And so um, I I look at it that way more. One of the things we we also talk a lot about is women often have to be asked several times to run. Right. And I only had one time, and I was really grateful for that. Uh, but but in terms of that, I mean, how much do you try to promote and find other mm-hmm. candidates, female candidates? 
Is that is that part of the work that you're doing? Yes, it's a big part. And uh, when I became mayor, I started this group in the in the region called the Women's Leadership Collaborative, and we pick 15 women not only in politics but in nonprofits and in for profit areas, and they're kind of like those mid level women that are deciding if they really want to lead. And we do a retreat with them, and then they have like a six-month program where they go every single month, and it's uh, facilitated. And um, this is like in the fourth year, so we've got 60 women that have gone through. But we've had great stories where um, uh, I remember a woman like quit her job and went to med school after doing this. Uh, a couple of women have like taken the leap to lead organizations after it, because I really think that's the key part, like paying attention to women that are in the middle of an organization and are really deciding whether or not to take the leap and what's like holding them back to say, yes, I want to take that. So just even being tapped for for that is, I think, been helpful. Then the other thing is, you know, when we're when I'm endorsing and trying to build leadership in my community, um, you know, I'm very cognizant of that, you know, it is pretty guy centered. And so we've been doing a lot of work to really encourage women to run and support and endorse women that are running, particularly women of color. Like, I think there's not enough African-American women, per, certainly in my community, in my region, that um, that get support. So we've been working on that, too. One of the big things that you have done uh, in your time is you helped pass universal pre-K. Yay. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> so talk about why, why was that an important issue for you? Well, I think uh, when we when I became mayor, I talked about wanting Dayton to become a city of learners, and uh, most people were like, How, "Why are you saying that? You don't run the schools. You don't have any say in the schools." Uh, but I know that if we're going to be serious about these communities in the middle of the country, uh, we have to really work on our workforce, and um, it seems to be it's been left up mostly to local communities to do that. Uh, so there were folks in our community that really educated me around education policy. I'm not a teacher, you know, um, don't run the schools or anything, but it is there's a role for mayors to play, and particularly around early childhood. And so um, because of that, and the, the county had done a lot of work, our county had done a lot of work in just like seeding the conversation, uh, we decided it was the right time to ask the voters to say, hey, we need to invest in our youngest folks. If we're really serious about education, they need to start school ready. Um, and we need to make sure we have quality uh, preschool. And so I was really proud. Dayton uh, is one of like a handful of cities across the country that passed this. They passed it by a double digit margin. They passed it on an income tax, which is the most progressive tax, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, and said, yeah, we need to invest in our kids. Uh, it's been super, super successful already. In the first year, we already saw uh, the kids gain like on, on their on their scores, which is amazing. Just in the first year, we focus heavily on quality, and it is a choice model because we know that like a lot of moms decide where they're sending preschool, not like where the school is, but like where they work. And so, uh, really been uh, really investing in quality. The other thing that's great about that is. A lot of these sites are run by African-American women that own their small business. And so we're able to invest in these places, like help them do business plans, help them, you know, um, send their um, staff to get their associates and degrees. And so I feel like we're, you know, of course, we're focused on the child, but we're lifting up women at the same time while this program is going. So I'm super proud of it. Um, uh, I have to say there's this trans transformational woman named Robin Lightcap that runs the program. I would never have like, I, I, when I look at programs, you know, you want to have like a really good leader in the community mm -hmm. that you know is going to get it done when you're putting that out there. And I would never have done it also if like I didn't know that Robin could do, do a phenomenal job making it happen. So you've been mayor. You had put your hat in for the governor's race. I did. In Ohio in 2018. Um, and then decided not to, to pursue it. Mm -hmm. Talk about that decision. 
That was a tough decision. Uh, I loved running for governor. Uh, and I love talking about what the state could do better to help support local communities and, and families. Uh, but that was a function of like just the, the, the money being too hard to come by in the state. Uh, when I got out of the race in January, um, Rich Cordray had entered the race. Uh, it was very clear, like he was fundraising, I think like the first month he bought in like a million dollars in the race. And, um, because I'm not well known in Northern Ohio, it would have taken like $4 million and I just could not could not get the money to make people get to know me. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you know, you have to be real about that. And uh, also I really wanted us to win, which did not happen, which right. I'm also sad about. Uh, <laughs> so I wanted to like, you know, be as helpful as possible. So if you know you're not going to win the primary, you don't see a path to win. It's not fair to you to ask your donors and your supporters to, hey, let's go on a kamikaze mission. I know there's no path. Um, so, I mean, I had to be really honest about that. And that's hard. Um um, especially after, you know, we spent about a year working on it. But I think um, I always said I did two things really great in that race. I got in that race really well, and I got out of that race really well. <laughs> so I don't have any regrets about it. What, what What's your biggest learning experience from it? Oh, I learned I learned so much about the state of Ohio just in that time. Uh, it was uh, a terrific experience. The state is enormous. Uh, it's very diverse. And I, you know that, but, like, experiencing it is different. And then, um, you know, just like tactically, I would do, I would do things different. I'd hire a finance director like right out of the gate, so I know uh, when I run again, if I get to do if I get to run again, um, I, you know, I would tactically do things a little bit different. But like, I mean, I made great friends across the state. Um, still are really close to a lot of people and stay in touch with them. Also, you know, I, I um, I'm I'm really pleased with the the process for me. I'm really sad we lost, but mm. really pleased that I got to learn so much. Well, that leads me into the, our last question. Uh, what's next for you? Do you see yourself running again statewide? I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to. I mean, I'm still young, as people tell me every day. Thank goodness. I hate it if, like, when they start saying you're not. It'll be so sad. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I hope so. I love I love being able to make a difference in politics. I, you know, believe in the democratic process, uh, you know, um, Everybody has a different kind of core value. For me, it's democracy and trying to make a difference uh, through leading is something I just really love to do. It's like a huge honor to get to do it. Uh, so I hope someday I'll get to take another stab at it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for asking me all these great questions. An important note for our listeners, Women Rule is going bi-weekly as of February. Same great conversations just every other week. We'll be back in your feed on February 13th. We've got some great guests lined up, so stay tuned. Women Rule is produced by Jenny Ament. Our booker is Jessica Andrews. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.